Well, like I said, we are going to be in Philippians 3. And like I said, you know, some people are like, you know, I believe in the Lord, but I'm just not feeling it. Um, I, I go on to work, I'm just not feeling it. Uh, you know, maybe I'm staying at home with the kids and I'm just not feeling it. I don't have a breath to take, you know, with the kids. Um, there's got to be more. Well, that's why we get into the Word. That's why we come to church. That's why we fellowship. And Paul brings us up, and he says in, uh, in chapter 3 here, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And Lisa, my thing did not change it. So it, whatever, you figure that out. It's the last thing in time I'm going to mention it. Um, but there must be more, and the more comes in right here. Rejoice in the Lord. When's the last time you sat down and you just thought, Man, I need to rejoice in the Lord. I just need to lay it on the line, just say, Lord, you are a, you're the one. I need to rejoice. And if we start rejoicing um, to the Lord or in the Lord on a daily basis, then the more will automatically come uh, because um, our concentration, our thoughts, our ideas, our mindset is on Christ. If it's on everything else in this world, the more never comes, right? But if it's on Christ, then it comes. Um, it shouldn't be on our circumstances. It's not what's going on around us. It's not because, you know, our, our joy doesn't come, or our lack of joy doesn't come because we're upset with our boss or our family or things aren't going well. We rejoice in the Lord because he has saved us from a world that's full of destruction. And ultimately, he saved us from hell. We need to remember that, right? You know, we, we, we have celebrations for birthdays. We have celebrations for anniversaries. We have celebrations for, you know, my, my adopted son. We celebrate the, the adoption day when, when, he, when that went through and all those things. But do we rejoice and celebrate the day we were saved from hell? We need to be thinking about the, those type of things. Because it's not what's going on around us. We can't rely on the circumstances of our life to make us happy. I tell you, when something, when something makes me happy and something happens, uh, something good happens during the day, I, I'm excited about it for a good 15, 20 minutes, right? And then life continues on. But I tell you, if something just really grates on you, something happens in the morning or in the afternoon, something bad happens or whatever, that stays with me. I don't know about you, but that stays with you, and you think about it throughout the day, right? So as believers, we should not rely on those circumstances. We can't. We must rejoice in the Lord. Either good things are happening or either bad things are happening. We must rejoice in the Lord, and that's the difficult part. Now, what is interesting is right after Paul says this, it reminds him to rejoice, in, or he reminds us to rejoice in the Lord. He kind of changes his tone. He says in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evil doers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. And we talked a little bit about this uh, last week, and he uses his visual cue of circumcision to talk about the circumcision of our hearts. It's really the motivation behind what we do and how we live. What motivates you on your life? 
Is it your family? Is it your friends? Is it your job? Is it the Lord? See, the Lord needs to come first in our motivation and then everything else after that. There's other guys who were using this situation that Paul's talking about as a control factor. They were ripping apart the church from within, saying, you have to do these things to be accepted by God. And Paul comes along and says, we've already dealt with this, and you're just evildoers. You're just the problem people right here. You're tearing apart the church, and the church needs to to watch out for those that do this. You know, it's one thing I kind of notice. It lends toward this, this idea of legalistic people. At one point in our lives, at one time, we all get to this point, every one of us, where we get a little legalistic. I can't believe so-and-so did that. Can you? And we become legalistic. And we start gossiping about it. You know, was it James that we went through and I kept asking you about your gossip every week? Yeah, how are we doing on our gossip? Yeah. <laughs> Give it over to the Lord, I tell you. But a lot, of, a lot of times, legalistic people come without grace. They come without any mercy. And they go at people. The Pharisees were legalistic people that became Christians. And this is who Paul's talking about. And, and some of these Pharisees, some of them totally understood Jesus and, and, and their mindset changed. But those who were into the law, I've got to follow the law to be accepted by God. And when they came over to Christ and understood his saving grace, they stayed with the law. And it didn't help. They do not understand what it meant to become a Christian. In fact, they still held on to this attitude of, well, I'm a Pharisee, I'm clean, I follow the law. Those Gentiles, okay, they may believe what I believe, but they're really not clean as I am. Yet, they don't know anything. We need to teach these guys, their thinking is. We need to bring them up to our level. We need to teach them what it means to be a Christian. You know, and knowing about the Jews is a big plus for us. Knowing about the background of our history as non-Jews. I don't know how many of you have Jewish blood. Maybe you do. That's wonderful. But we come as Gentiles into the word, and knowing the history of the Jews is a good thing for us. A lot of Old Testament scriptures point toward Jesus. But these Jewish Christians here, they were doing the wrong things. I don't know, if you go back and, and, and you get a chance, uh, read Acts 15, because this is what we're kind of referring back to. There was a whole bunch of Gentiles that were starting to believe in Jesus and uh, believe in God, and, and the Jews were like, can we accept them into the church at all? I mean, I don't know what to do with this. And those were legitimate questions for those Jews, because they, uh, you know, they, they weren't ready to understand yet. So they called the big church together. They got a big church council together. And Paul and Barnabas went down there. And Peter and James was there. And and Paul and Barnabas got up and told the story of the miraculous things that God has been doing with them, with the Gentiles, which was amazing. And it was just flooring the church. They, They were just amazed by it. 
but they didn't understand Jewishness. But they were willing to accept that Jesus died for their sins. Then Peter gets up and says, you know what, guys? The Lord talked to me in a dream. He told me about the Gentiles, and this is back in, in Acts 10. And then James gets up, and, and James, who kind of becomes the de facto leader of the early church, which is ironic, because we all think of Peter as the leader, right? Because that's been drummed into us, you know. But James gets up, and he's kind of the de facto leader right here. And, and uh, he goes on and says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. And he went on to explain how the Gentiles were to be accepted into God's kingdom and into Christianity. We see the leadership of the church take all the information in and lead and make a decision and go forward. But what happens? You have this group, the Judaizers, and you have this Pharisaic group, okay? The Pharisees that became Christians. And they basically said, we don't care what the leadership says. We don't agree with it. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. No, no one here has ever felt like that, right? In your job, in your home, in your family, and you know, in the church. You've never felt like leadership is in the wrong, right? <laughs> right. Okay. And I'm not saying that anytime you disagree, you're acting like a Pharisee. I'm, I'm not trying to say that. Sometimes the leadership is wrong. <gasps> Did the pastor say that? Yes, sometimes I can be wrong. That's okay. Just like sometimes you can be wrong, and that's okay. That's what the Christianity, that's what our fellowship in God and Jesus is, is working through those and saying, you know what? I may disagree with you on this, but you're still my brother and sister in Christ. That's the key to the situation. But these guys, man, they're like, I don't care. We're still going to teach this. We're still going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. That never works out good for relationships when you think that way. Paul doesn't look kindly on this at all. He finally, you know, he gets fed up and he says, you know what? You are dogs, and this was a, a you know, we, we love our, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, you know, we love our lovable pets, right? This is not the type of dogs we're talking about, okay? Think of the pit bull that's out of control going after the child. That's the type of dog we're talking about here. He goes, you are just dogs. It's this derogatory term. You're ripping apart the body of Christ. And these guys were struggling and trying to bring in their ways and, of worshiping the Lord which the Lord totally changed when Jesus died on the cross for us. They were struggling with bringing their way into the Christian church, and they were having a hard time with it. Grace is important to the church. We need to remember that. Grace is so important. We need to give grace to those who are new in the faith. We bring them along. We have to give grace to those who may not understand something. We bring them along. There are baby Christians amongst us that may not get it, and that's okay. We love them until they start to understand how the Lord wants us to live. So then they start to grow in the Lord. And we have to ask, how do I get this across to them? And we try several ways to do this with grace. But there comes a point in the church, within individuals, well, we just have to say how it is. We must flat out say how it is. 
And when we do this, we still have to say it with grace. I've always said this. You get people who are not married, they come into the church, they're, you know, they're cohabitating, they're living together, and we love them into marriage. You take two kids, if my son got married or was living with somebody and, and with a, a girl you know, from another church or, or this church and they were living together and they've grown up in church and they know, we're going to rip them one, aren't we? We're going to tell them how it is and say, you know that is wrong. You need to repent. But others, we love them into it because they don't know yet. And that's an okay thing. But the legalistic person says, ah, oh, no, hey, look at them. And that is wrong. That is not with grace or mercy whatsoever. The tendency of the legalistic person, our group, is to look at things backwards. They look at things from a side of Christianity that, that uh, most people don't look at, uh, look at it from. The kind of standpoint of, of my behavior that it that, that my behavior is what causes the Lord to accept me. My actions causes the Lord to either accept me or reject me. In other words, how I act, what I do, and this is wrong. My actions do not dictate whether the Lord likes me or not. That's completely backwards. Have you ever heard uh, this statement from people outside the church? Oh, man, I would never attend. I mean, the walls would fall down, right? Well, I'm sorry. These walls are not the church. We are the church. And we're right there standing with them. We're not falling over. Okay, so that's a good way of telling them that. You know what I'm saying? But it's this idea that my actions, you know, I have to keep working on me so God will accept me. And this is not good. This is not a good way of thinking. Instead of the idea of, of I do these things because the Lord loves me. I act a certain way because the Lord loves me. Instead of this idea of I do these things because this is what's expected of me and this is how the Lord wants me to act, so therefore I act this way. Instead of I do these things out of response of love. When my seven-year-old comes up to me, or I guess he's eight now, it's been that way for half a year. I still call him seven. He comes up and he gives me a hug or he bends down and kisses me on the shoulder or the top of the head, which he has a tendency to do for some reason. I don't know, maybe he's learned it from us, you know. He does those things not because I expect those things, right? In fact, last night, or was it, it was yesterday morning, he came running into the, the living room. He woke up and he's like, I gotta be near somebody. And he goes running through the house to find somebody, okay? And then he sees mom sitting in one chair, and he goes, good morning, mom. And I looked at him, I go, what am I, chopped liver? You know? And then he looks at me, I'm like, good morning. And he won't say it. You know, he's, he's kind of joking around with me and stuff. And, and the, the, you know, it's the idea of if I try to force him into saying it, he's not going to say it, right? That's how we are. But when we want to love each other, we want, you know, we do it out of love. We do it because but it's a response from that love. See, the idea is the difference between must and responding out of the Lord's love. Jesus 
really sets us straight in Matthew 23, and that's another great one. When you want to think of Jesus' love, and he is, right? Jesus is love. But we've gotten to a point in this world where we just go, oh, Jesus is love. He accepts everything. You want to act like, you want to be an adulteress? Go ahead. Jesus is love. You want to be a liar? Go ahead. Jesus is love. I mean, that's what we're saying when we say it like that, right? You want to kill somebody? Go ahead. Jesus, he has love for you. Is that a good way of thinking? Please, somebody say no. (laughs) I may start looking over my shoulder here, you know? But this is backwards. If you ever want to see the side of Jesus where he just lays into it, read Matthew 23 and try to understand what he's trying to say. Some of the harshest words out of Jesus' mouth is for the legalistic people. And basically, he said to them, guys, you are a tomb on the outside. Now, this was an insult for a Jew. A Jew would walk by tombs, and they would have to go way around them because heaven forbid that they touch a tomb or get near it because then they become unclean. And then they have to go through this seven-day ritual period of cleansing themselves before they can go back to the temple. So for Jesus to say, you are a tomb, that was an insult. He says, you are empty on the inside. We want to never forget the work that God has done for us. So Jesus is saying the legalistic person thinks backwards, and they only address the outside. They don't address their actions. They never look to the inside. And they deal with grace with themselves, but harshness to everyone else. This is why Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Now, I don't know about you. If you ever had somebody come over for a surprise visit, and, and like you may even know they're coming over for, for like 10 minutes, like they've called you and said, hey, I'm headed over. What do you do? You clean. You run around. You stuff things in places you normally don't put things, right? Yeah, you know. You get into the pantry and you're like, honey, why is this pan in the pantry, you know? <laughs> yeah. We're trying to move stuff. Jesus is saying, I know what it looks like on the inside. You don't have to run around and clean it up. It's okay. I still want to be with you. Now, the last thing I want to say about a legalistic person is that they think they have God's approval. God loves me. I'm more mature than you. I have God's approval, so therefore, I can do this. I'm right with the Lord. And you're wrong with the Lord. That's a hard person to deal with, isn't it? It's an interesting process to go through. Either you put up with it for a while through grace, or you kind of start fighting back. And before you start fighting, there's a time to fight back against that, okay? Believe me. But before you do that, go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do I do here? What should I stay, say here? And you may say, you know what? You're in the right, but give in to him right now. This is not worth the fight. Okay? He may say, you know what? You're wrong. Or he may say, just let him have it. But you've got to go to the Lord, and you've got to let him have it with grace, but you've got to go to the Lord. How do I confront them? Lord, is it my time to confront them? Is it my time to give grace? All these things are important. And lastly, I want to say, 
A legalistic person drives people from the church. They tend to get into everyone's business and have an opinion on everything, and they irritate people so much that people finally say, you know what, I'm ready to go to another church. And this is never a good thing. We need to combat this within ourselves as much as possible before we combat it in the church. So Paul goes on and says in verse 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, as someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And we talked about how we trust Jesus, and a sermon a couple weeks ago, how we hold on to Jesus at the same time reaching out to the world with Jesus, okay? We do both. And it kind of reminds me of Jeremiah 9, uh, 23, um, you'll have to switch it. Um, it says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Now that is a verse to remember. That's a verse to plaster on your mirror or in your car or on your fridge, wherever it is that you see all the time, to, to learn that thing, because that right there is awesome. The legalistic person glorifies in themselves, and God is saying, no, 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 the glory is within me, not you. The glory of understanding and of knowing me, because he delights in that. Paul says that we worship by the Spirit of God. Who, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, that though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, okay, there are things that I'm looking at that, that the Pharisees want you know, a certain uh, kind of level of where you need to be on the scale of goodness of God that the Pharisee looks at, and Paul says, that's me. I'm actually above you. I got them all. And he lists out these things. I've been circumcised on the eight days. You know what, guys? I had great parents. They took me to church on the eighth day, and they had me circumcised by the law. My background comes from when I was a little kid. You know what? My family, I'm Jewish, and my family's from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their blood flows in my veins. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. This, he's laying it all out. He's going, I have all the requirements here. You know Saul and David, the first kings? Yeah, I'm from their lineage. So top that, guys. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Whenever I've traveled, I retained my ethnicity. I've always been a Hebrew. I've always followed the Jewish laws when it comes to what to eat and what not to eat, what to touch, what not to touch, when to travel, when not to travel. I've done all those things, and I've done them well. When I was around Hebrews, I spoke the Hebrew language. I didn't speak that gutter language. I ate the right foods. In regards to the law, there's nothing more to say. I am the best of the best. See, the Pharisees thought that they could attain perfection here on this earth. They're like, if I could only get to that level of perfection. And Paul's saying, man, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I did what was right, you know, as often as I could. As for zeal of persecuting the church, you know what, guys? 
I didn't just believe in the zeal of persecuting the church. I went out there and I helped kill these Christians because I was following the law. I went to Jerusalem and said, guys, I want to go out and kill the Christians. I want to go out there and kill the guys who are going against the Christian faith. And the council said, you know what? Go ahead. And we're talking about the Jewish council, not the Christian church council, okay? Paul actually tracked the Christians down and killed them. And Paul was going to do just that when the Lord met him. This is where the Lord meets him. The Lord chases him down. And look what he does with him. I, I love this. The Lord meets us when we're going the wrong direction. See, we think we've got to turn it around to get back to the Lord. But the Lord's actually coming after us. He chases us down like he does Paul. Paul says, man, I was on a donkey and I got knocked on my hind end. I looked like an idiot. I was blinded and I'm talking back and forth to Jesus himself. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And everybody else, they have no clue what's going on. I look like an idiot. While this is happening, the Lord is also talking to a guy named Ananias in Antioch. And the Lord comes to this guy and says, by the way, Saul, okay, because Saul changed his name to Paul. In Philippians, we call him Paul. But before, he was Saul. And Saul is coming by your house. Wait a second, Lord. What do you mean he's coming by my house? I don't want him anywhere near my house because is, is he coming to kill my family? Do I need to get my kids out? You know, you can imagine all the things going through his mind. No, I want you to talk to him. <laughs> what? But then Paul shows up and he's blind at this point. And for three days, Ananias and his family get to watch him. For three days, they kind of understand how the Lord is starting to change this man, what's going on internally with Paul. For three days, Ananias and everybody else watched Paul, and it had a calming effect on them. And after three days, the scales fell off Paul's eyes. And Ananias finally got to look him in the face, in the eyes, and he said, Brother Paul. In other words, I accept you now. That is amazing. Paul says, you want zealous? I will show you zealous. Go look at my history. As for the legalistic righteousness, this is the idea of the Pharisees. They felt that they could be blameless and faultless. And Paul was the meanest, especially when he was the most righteous and blameless and faultless. Paul knew what it meant to be legalistic. So Paul you know, talks against this legalism, and he's sitting there going, I understand because I was in the midst of it, and I am running out of time, so let me hurry up. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss or garbage for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for, the, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. May I gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of the resurrection and the participation in his suffering, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul totally opens up here. 
You would never see a Pharisee, a legalistic person, open up like this. You wouldn't. There's several key words here. Paul says two words, consider and gain, several times. And you see something repeated several times. You kind of need to stop and look at it. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I consider them a loss. Everything I have up until now is considered trash. I was successful, but the Lord gets a hold of him and says, all that means nothing. Turn around and look at your results. Paul could turn around and look for him when he was Saul, before the Lord changed him, and he's going, all that stuff was for nothing. For nothing. And the Lord slowly changes Paul over time, and he looks at things from a different direction, which is the Lord's direction. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul is saying, you know, when Jesus gets a hold of your life, he takes out the garbage takes out the stuff that shouldn't be there. Now, I don't know about you. I have too much junk in my life, right? Stuff. I don't like to throw it away. Do you like to throw away your stuff? You know, I read an article early this morning about a person who was going through their parents' house and, and their parent was moving in with them and, and the whole agonizing decision of what to keep and what to throw away because there's so many memories. And I understand that in a sense, but at the same time, we have too much stuff. And Jesus comes into our life, and he moves out the emotional trash. He moves out the emotional baggage and stuff that we're holding on to. And we're like, but wait, I really liked that. And he goes, but it's not good for you. I'm getting rid of it. Some of these things that we thought were so precious, you can look back now and go, ugh. Why would anybody want that in their house? Why would anybody want that in their spiritual house? Why would you want to deal with that? Paul is saying, this is what I considered about all that stuff. It was garbage. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and it was all trash compared to Jesus. See, I think this is hard on us because we like our stuff. We like approval. We like respect. We like having diplomas that other people don't have, right? We hang them on our walls to say, this is what I've done. Yeah, I got that. And it was all junk compared to knowing Jesus. Compared to him being active in our lives, there must be more. There really must be more. And it comes with Jesus being active in our lives. I'm not saying those things are completely worthless. Attain things in our life. You know, we have to have goals to keep living, you know, but have Jesus in the middle of it. We can say, you know what? Jesus helped me get that. Versus look at what I did. You see the difference? One is through Christ. The other is just uh, me patting myself on the back. Going, you know, and then we come to a point and say, why did I spend so much time and energy and effort on that? And it feels good when the Lord takes away our garbage. It takes a burden off our shoulders. And we're like, oh, I really, I thought I really loved that. But now that Jesus has taken, the, taken that away, oh, man, it feels better. It feels really better. But it takes a time to, to get that. And one thing I've noticed is that when God gets involved in our life, we no longer have time for the legalistic. Why? Because we're dealing with our own garbage. We're cleaning things out. 
Instead of looking at everybody else, I have to look at my own stuff and start, you know, taking out my own garbage. And today the focus is on Jesus, what Jesus wants to take out in my life of the things that I've stored up, just the same as you. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Verse 9, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his suffering, becoming like him in death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We need to start thinking about Jesus and our hearts and how that impacts our home, our job, our vacations, our recreations, and seeing what is important and what is garbage. What is the most important thing in your life? What's the most important possession that you have? Should it be your car, your home? No, the most important thing is Jesus. We need to get to a point where it's not the things we own. It's not the status symbol that we have, but it's about Jesus and Jesus alone. There's more to this life, and that's rejoicing in him. Because this life can't make us happy, it won't. The only thing that gives us real joy in life is Jesus Christ being active in our lives And when something comes along and knocks us to our knees, because life does that, has a tendency to do that, right? Knocks you to your knees, takes the legs out from underneath you. I mean, it was going to be a great catch in the end zone. I mean, Super Bowl's coming up, right? But then, whack, I just got knocked down. It was right there. See, these things in life don't kill us. They may take us down a notch, but with Jesus, the Lord picks us back up. We need to get to a point where everything passes through the filter that Jesus has. We have junk that needs to be taken out, needs to be trashed. We need to clear it out for Jesus' love to replace his fellowship, his grace, his mercy, and his love. He's the filter of our lives. Well, why don't you stand and I'll pray as the worship team comes and leads us out in a short song. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you look at our lives and you don't see a garbage dump. You just see a few things that need to be corrected, things that need to be taken out, that we can live our life through your love and through your mercy and through your amazing grace that is there that when we hand the things over to you, you keep what is great and you throw out what doesn't need to be there. We love you, Lord. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he watch over you today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.